Listeners, it is July 13th, the day we were recording this. Welcome to The Learning Curve here from rainy Boston, but it's still a good week because I don't know if my co-host Gerard was watching, but Argentina won Copa America this weekend, which was a pretty big deal in what was a very loud and rowdy house at my house Saturday night. Gerard, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I've got to say I did not watch it, but let me say congratulations to your family, given the roots you have in that part of South America. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a little, it was like so exciting, but also it's always frightening to watch my husband watch. Um, he doesn't like to call it soccer, obviously, to watch football uh, because he he won't sit down. He turns into a completely different human being. Um, like I didn't find this out about him really until we'd been <laughs> together for quite a long time. So um, we had some friends over, also soccer fans, but they kept looking at him and they're like, are you okay? Like he gets really red and and too excited at inappropriate moments. And one of the scary things I've noticed is that my children are turning into him. So I'm I'm utter I'm completely surrounded. I'm just waiting for the dog to turn on me. But um, <laughs> it was it was a really good and exciting game nonetheless, as well. And so was the game um, England v Italy on on Sunday. And and oof. To my to my English friends out there, so so sorry. Yes, <laughs> I did not realize how important football is to Europeans until oh. 1998, when I'm um, at a program with some UVA professors and students uh, at St. Anne's College at Oxford, and I happened a chance to go across the street, went to a pub. Uh, England was playing someone, and there were people shouting, "Where were you in 1966?" Well, I thought they were talking to me because I was born in 1966. I'm trying to figure out what the heck does this have to do with me drinking Guinness. Uh, but that was when England was uh, in the World Cup at the last time. And when they scored, everyone jumped in the air and some of them holding the beer, threw their beer in the air. And I was drenched with different types of ales and IPAs and Guinness. And so it put in perspective just how much football is to national identity in ways, football, basketball here, per se, it's not the same thing. And of course, we've got some stories of the week to get to, Gerard. I'm pretty excited about mine because one of the co-authors of my piece from Education Next, we recently had on this show. Um, this one is from Marguerite Rosa and Chad Alderman. It's in Education mm -hmm. Next. And uh, the title, this is something I know, I know we've both been thinking a lot about lately. We've been talking about it some. But the title of this article is New Federal Money is Coming to Schools. There are other options for spending it than hiring lots more staff. So, you know, I think we were talking last week, Gerard, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that we've got so all of this federal money and there's still just a lot of room to figure out how districts especially are actually going to spend the, the, the last round, the American Rescue Plan money. Um, not a lot of clarity, not a lot of transparency, but one thing that's becoming increasingly clear, and I think that we could have assumed this, is that you know schools and districts are like, hey, let's hire more people. Which and, and actually, over dinner this weekend, a friend of mine said, well, they should totally use it to like pay teachers more. Teachers aren't paid enough. True, might be true, but you know there are some real problems, as you know, my friend, with spending federal stimulus money to to get more bodies in buildings, to uh, create salary increases that that will cause you to fall off a fiscal cliff. 
um, when this money runs out in 2028. So, you know, as these authors point out, there's a lot to do and using this particular pot of money to add more staff, to give raises, stuff like that is probably not the way to go if you want to, you know, be conscientious in, in your budgeting. Um, so, and, and they point out, and I really appreciate, this is the, this is the part about anytime um, Professor Rosa writes about stuff is she, she really reminds us of like the mistakes we've made in the past, right? So she talks about that we made a big bet um, many times in recent history where we've tried to increase staffing, right? And that hasn't always turned out the way that we thought it should, um, whether it's from, you know, hiring more teachers because we're going to decrease class sizes, but ending up not getting the right people in the classroom. Or as they point out, one of the trends in recent years has just been to surround teachers with folks that are in non-teaching roles, right? So she says that, for example, that public schools have gone from employing one staff member for every 14 students in 1970 to one for every eight students today. Now, Gerard, from my perspective, that could be a good thing if it had a positive impact on academic outcomes, socio-emotional health, you name it, like whatever, whatever we need. But the data really don't necessarily bear that out. So one of the things that um, that Professor Rosa and Aldermans talk about here is the fact that so few folks are talking about the other things that we should be doing, maybe extending the school day. So, you know, she's talking about in here that um, New Hampshire is going to, it, Rhode Island and New Hampshire, sorry, are working with Khan Academy. They're doing tutoring and they're going to extend the school day. San Antonio is going to extend the school year by 30 days for the next four years. So if kids have lost time on learning, this is a pretty good way to maybe try and make up for that. But as always, it's a really, it's, it's a fascinating read. I recommend it to everyone. And I wish that, um, you know, if we weren't so wonky, we could explain this to your average parent uh, around why just just hiring more teachers, which is, of course, what, what the teachers unions are going to be advocating for, is probably not the best way to spend this particular pot of money. Gerard, what do you think? So Rosa and Chad are two of the smartest people uh, in the country when we think about spending and how we talk about it on a practical level, but also understanding spending through the lens of politics, policy, and social economy. So always glad to hear about what they have to say. When I hear you talk about staffing, the first person who comes to mind for me is Dr. Ben Scafferty at uh, Kennesaw State University mm. in Georgia. Uh, he wrote a report several years ago called The Staffing Search, where he actually looked at every single budget across all 50 states and identified that the increase in funding uh, for schools, uh, in fact, didn't go to more teachers. In fact, it went to support staffers who in part supported teachers, but also you know, supported students. And so while I'll be the first to tell you, we wanna make sure we have great teachers in the classroom and that we uh, reward the ones who are doing well, we provide professional development for the ones who cannot. Uh, there may be some tough conversations about staying in the profession if we're not reaching the goals, but there are a lot of dynamics that go into play. But simply bringing in more teachers of record, uh, as you said, could work for the unions. It could also work 
politically for local lawmakers who can run on a ticket by saying, I'm going to do more for education or governors who are going to do the same thing. But when the rubber meets, meets the road, there's so many dynamics about school finance that go into play. And I think the ideas that they put in play are, are worth thinking about. You know, I hadn't considered a couple of them. So I look forward to uh, learning more about what they're doing. But, you know, we've talked about this a lot uh, during the pandemic. There's a lot of money on the table and we tend to just want to spend and we tend to only want to talk about funding from one ledger side and that's revenue. But I want to talk about expenditures and we also have to talk about accountability. So thanks so much for bringing that to my attention. I will never fail to do so, my friend. So let me bring something to your attention that I know you will find quite interesting. And it's from one of our colleagues, Mike McShane from EdChoice, also one of my AEI colleagues. And it's called School Choice Keeps Winning, and it's in Forbes. And Mike does a really good rundown of what's taking place in states, primarily driven by what's happened with uh, COVID-19. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Let's take Pennsylvania. Uh, the state has actually approved the largest expansion of its tax credit program in its 20-year history. What has just taken place will result in an additional $40 million in spending that will allow, get this, approximately 13,000 more students to participate in the program. And when you think about EdChoice's annual ABCs of school choice, they've already identified that approximately 46,000 low and middle-income students already participate in the program. So this is going to help more students. And uh, we you know, figure out that the average scholarship is $1,990 from one of the 258 scholarship organizations in the state. This is going to make a great difference for a lot more students uh, in that place. Let's go to the Midwest. Let's go to Ohio. Uh, and this is a state that's got multiple choice programs. Uh, the state decided to increase the value of its Ed Choice Scholarship Program, as well as a program that is targeted for children in Cleveland. Uh, it's increased it to 5,500 per student for students in grades K through eight and 7,500 for students in high school. But they didn't stop there. The legislature and the governor also signed into law a new tax credit scholarship that's open to all students throughout the state. And if you think Ohio was going to stop there, they did not. They've also created a new micro grant program for low income students who receive $500 to use <laughs> for educational expenses and $250 um, for personal use tax credit for families to offset homeschooling expenses. And there's also 500 to 1000 for personal use tax credits for private school families to help them with their costs. So Mike decided to then take a look just across the board. I'm going to just whip through this quickly. Indiana, New Hampshire, and West Virginia have all created new education savings accounts. Kentucky and Missouri, they've created new tax credit funded education savings account, first of its type in the country. Arkansas and Ohio's created new tax credit scholarship programs. Florida's expanded its ESA program. Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Maryland, Ohio expanded its voucher program. And lastly, Arizona, Florida, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Montana, Nevada, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and South Dakota expanded their tax credit programs. Now, the COVID-19 
tragedy, which it is, uh, cannot be looked upon as something that is a blessing to school choice. There are millions of families who have been impacted financially. Millions of students uh, were out of school. Millions of teachers' jobs impacted. There was, there was also death. But in the midst of this crisis, there was an opportunity for legislative creativity. And so lawmakers decided to support school choice in very unique ways. And most of this would be tough to do without the support of organizations like the Pioneer Institute, Excel in Education, Ed Choice, Federation for Children, Heritage, Cato, the State Policy Network, um, the Institute for Justice, but also want to give a shout out to the Black Alliance for Educational Options, which in the days that it was actually uh, alive and working well, worked in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio to move that kind of work. So, Mike, thank you for the summation. And Kara, interested in knowing what you think. Yeah, well, I mean, McShane says it all, right? It's It's been the year of choice and no surprise that it's been the year of choice. Um, and yeah, as you know, Gerard, this is something that I've been, um, I work on on the daily uh, in, in, in my other job. And it's, it's really exciting. I think that the, the question in some of these places, especially those that have passed really big and important choice programs, but it's really the first of its kind in the state is that it's all going to come down to implementation. And, um, and I think that there's, we've got a lot of good examples about how to do it well and, um, some things that could be tweaked and fixed around the edges. It's going to be a real learning for all of us. And, you know, one of the questions that I get most often from folks who just sort of aren't sure what they think of these programs is like, oh my gosh, but how do you account for quality? And, and won't, won't things go crazy? And if you have an education scholarship account or education savings account, can't parents just go off and, you know, buy a new car and tell you that they're buying a tutor? And, and the answer is no. <laughs> so for, for the listening audience that, that doesn't know how these things work, you know, We've gotten really pretty sophisticated uh, in terms of how to provide parents with a much broader range of options. So like an education scholarship account, spending money on a tutor, like you said, Ohio, bringing the bringing the money, the micro grant money to offset homeschooling expenses. I'm a huge fan of the various micro grant programs, some of which we saw, um, you know, governors use GEARS funds to stand them up in places like Texas and Oklahoma and Idaho that allow kids to, they, they might want to stay in their local district school, but giving family the opportunities, whether it's 500 bucks or 1500 bucks in some cases to, to buy, you know, um, curricular materials that kids can use at home or tutors, et cetera. And we now have the technology that allows parents to just go on and sort of like shopping on Amazon. It's not like we're writing blank checks. We are truly empowering families with, um, with new different options and often options that are supplemental to the education that's already taking place in the classroom. And I just think it's so important because to my mind, it, it levels the playing field, right? So not all families have the luxury of being able to enroll their kid in Kumon if, if, um, if, if school's not working for them, or if maybe they're just really want more math because they love it, right? This really helps to level the playing field for families that, that couldn't otherwise access those kinds of services and plenty of others. Um, you know, Microgrants for summer school. We're looking at a pilot in Colorado. So, uh, not summer school. I'm sorry, summer camp. Summer school for some kids, maybe. But it's exciting stuff, Gerard. I, I agree. And cheers to Mike McShane for summing that up for us. Um, we're going to switch gears. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Morgan Hunter. She's a research fellow at the Independent Institute in California. And we're going to, she makes an interesting argument, Gerard. You know, we've been talking a lot about 
what and how to teach when it comes to history in school. She's going to talk to us about the argument for teaching about antiquity in high school. So coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we're back with Dr. Morgan Hunter. She's a research fellow at the Independent Institute. In 2020, with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen and Dr. Williamson Evers, she co-authored the white paper, Is It Time for a 490 BC Project? High Schoolers Need to Know Our Classical Heritage. Hunter has taught classical philosophy, political science, 19th century U.S. social history, ancient and medieval political philosophy, and Latin at UC Berkeley, as well as Latin at the Bowman International School. In her work, she has a reading knowledge of Latin, Greek, French, German, Italian, and Russian. She received her BA, summa cum laude in Latin and Greek, from Santa Clara University, and her MA and PhD in Classics from UC Berkeley. Dr. Hunter, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. We're really happy to have you here for this quite timely discussion. So we'd like to jump right in to this white paper that you've produced. It's called, Is It Time for a 490 BC Project? High Schoolers Need to Know Our Classical Heritage. And in it, you make a case for the central importance of American high schoolers studying ancient Greek and Roman history in order to better understand our civilization. Lots of debate going on about what kids need to know before they graduate high school. Certainly a hot topic. But we want to know what you think. What are your main arguments for having kids study antiquity and when, why it's so important to education in, in the 21st century? Well, I think that while there's a lot of controversy currently about what exactly students should be studying in history, as seen in the current controversies over which approach to American history teaching should be taken or uh, should we just study Western history versus the ancient history of other cultures as well. Uh, The most fundamental question is, is it important to teach history at all? One of the interesting things I discovered in the course of writing this paper is the intense hostility to the very idea of teaching history, any kind of history, that was actually dominant in the American educational establishment for most of the 20th century, the replacement of history by social studies. And this was initially spearheaded by Thomas Jesse Jones, who had this argument that history was just irrelevant for students, particularly African-American and working-class students, who would go to work in factories and just needed to learn what would enable them to adjust to their actual conditions of life. So before we think about what type of history is necessary, it's necessary to defend the value of studying history and other um, not immediately practical subjects as a whole. Now, the question of ancient history specifically, that is in some ways easier Once you have the idea that it's important for kind of citizenship and for general uh, humanistic education in general to know about what happened in the past and not just about what's relevant to one's career in the present, the idea that it's very important to learn about the great civilizations of history, and in this sense we are multicultural because we do think that the all great civilizations of the axial age, the four great ones, uh, uh, Mediterranean classical antiquity, the ancient Near East, uh, ancient Indian civilization, and ancient Chinese civilization all have, are all very historically important, uh, have shaped the human heritage, have important lessons to teach us. 
But that classic, uh, the Greco-Roman classics are particularly important and should dominate what students learn because they're the best documented. We have the most sources from them. And it's the most relevant to us simply because they've shaped our own culture, the one that we're currently living in. But it's also helpful to study classics for the same reason that it's uh, helpful to study other civilizations, because they're at the same time very familiar, but also very different. They force students to realize that their own cultural assumptions are not universally held. Um, For example, I distinctly remember sort of the thing that made me want to study classics was paradoxically when I was first read the Iliad. And my mind was just blown by the sheer strangeness of it all. It was beautiful and haunting, but just so unimaginably strange. But at the same time, very relatable. The characters were very human. So this mix of similarity and difference does seem uh, peculiar to uh, the Greco-Roman world. If you could talk a little bit about, you know, from the foundations of English language to architecture to the work of great statesmen and artists, um, Greek and Roman roots, as, as I think you're pointing out here, they run really deep in our common culture and literary traditions. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the ancient history found for example, in the writings of Shakespeare, the founding fathers, Martin Luther King Jr., and and what's the relevance to high schoolers today? Oh, well, okay, this is very interesting. So in the case of Shakespeare, the obvious point is that many of his uh, most iconic plays were directly inspired by Greek and Roman examples, not just obviously the history plays like Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, but also uh, a lot of his comedies were direct adaptations of ancient Roman comedies. But I think far more important is that the whole kind of concept of, of tragic theater seems to be totally distinct to the West and invented by the ancient Greeks. So, and also comedy, although other forms of comedy exist in other cultures, but definitely the Western tradition of comedy as found in Shakespeare, goes back to the ancient Greeks. And you can't really fully understand or appreciate Elizabethan tragedy and comedy until you can compare and contrast them with their uh, Greek and Roman forebears. Um, On the subject of tragedy, one of the professors at Stanford I talked to over the course of my research for the paper said that his uh, students from China were very fascinated by tragedy because, according to them, the concept of the tragic hero was not a widespread concept in their culture. So they were interested to see this new perspective from the Greeks. Now, for the founding fathers, the idea of the, the idea of the republic, very uniquely Greco-Roman idea, specifically Roman. Uh, idea that greatly shaped their uh, thinking. Um, Balin, Pocock, and Wood talk about how the Republican tradition was absolutely central to the founding of the U.S. And this tradition, uh, discussed in a waiting question here, ultimately goes back to Cicero. And another thing I learned while doing this research is that while only about 30% of the founders went to college, awareness of classical political and cultural ideas was so widespread at the time of the founding that they were all permeated by classical culture, as shown, all the founders were, as shown by allusions they make in their personal writings and other things. Now, as for uh, Martin Luther King, I think that 
here the key classical concept is the idea of natural law, uh, higher, which is higher than contingent human laws and in light of which contingent human laws and political arrangements are judged. This goes back to the very ancient Greek debate, the golden age of Athens over nomos versus phusis, whether or not law conforms with nature or not. Uh, the Antigone of Sophocles is one of the most iconic illustrations of this debate. The heroine of it defies the tyrant's uh, order that she not bury her brother because she claims the higher natural law, which is higher than the law of the state, commands her to do so. Now, the later Roman legal theory, as seen in Cicero, and Stoicism, which influenced a legal theory, uh, formalized this idea that laws are only just to the extent that they're in accord with natural law. And the Stoics in particular, and works followed by the Roman later legal tradition, held, held particularly that slavery was contrary to natural law. So they didn't tolerate slavery, there was always this fundamental contradiction in their thought, which kind of set the seeds for later moral condemnation of slavery as an institution, that it was not in accord with natural law, and laws ought to follow natural law. What I want to say up front, Dr. Hunter, is that I had an opportunity in an earlier life to be an early supporter of a group that created Boys Latin uh, School in Philadelphia. And when I tell you that the study of Latin for four years amongst mostly African-American young men in some tough zip codes in Philadelphia, to see today how many of them have gone to college, to the military, have started businesses and families is just absolutely tremendous. So I wanted to start off by saying that up front. So as we talk about the classics, we know that in April, the Washington Post uh, published an article uh, co-authored by Cornel West where he was talking about just the spiritual catastrophe uh, that resulted from Howard University shutting down its classics department. And he cited the wide impact that ancient Greek and Roman history had on shaping ideas and writings of people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King. In fact, Dr. King references Socrates three times in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Would you talk to us about why high school students and teachers of all backgrounds uh, should study the classics and what it means uh, to having a good life. Oh, thank you. So that's an extremely important question. And I would say the question of diff students of different backgrounds can be understood in two different ways. Sometimes it's phrased in the concept of what do why should students from non-Western cultural backgrounds study the classics? And here, my experience at Berkeley uh, both myself and talking to other professors, where there's an incredible number of international students from Asia, and they're fascinated by classics. And often the people most interested in it are precisely those for whom it's new and different. They have a kind of comparative method. They can see both how, they can understand how the classical Western culture differs from their own culture, and they can appreciate aspects of both. They can compare and contrast them. Um, I'll repeat what I said earlier about the professor from Stanford. He said that his seminar in Rome, specifically on the Latin language, attracted an extremely large, disproportionately large number of international students from China who said that they wanted to learn more about the roots of Western culture to better be able to compare and contrast it with their own. I've had very interesting experiences with students from China who told me that they wanted to learn more about ancient philosophy because they kind of learned about it in China, wanted to learn more about a different philosophical tradition. 
But then there's the issue of uh, African-Americans are fully immersed in Western culture, part of it just as much as we, as um, any other American group. So this, I think, is more the democratic case, the argument that contra Thomas Jesse Jones' argument that, oh, only the elite should study Greek and Latin. It's not relevant to ordinary people. That, no, if we want to live in a democratic society, everyone needs to be able to deal with, to understand the roots of their culture, to deal with higher intellectual issues. We shouldn't have this intellectual caste system where people are only, where ordinary non-elite people are only expected to be able to deal with things that affect their own immediate lives and make them better employees. There was, we cited this article in The Guardian by this left-wing British author who, point, who talks about the importance of democratizing classics, saying it's incredible, it's relevant to working class students, it's it needs to be accessible to everyone, that the way to achieve a democratic society isn't by eliminating the study of the humanities altogether, but by making it so it's not just a preserve of elites. Thank you. So here's a follow-up. John Adams and Winston Churchill both cited uh, ancient Roman Cicero as perhaps the most important and influential philosopher statesman uh, in Western civilization. Would you talk about Cicero as an icon of the liberal arts and what uh, his civic ideals meant to the world then and to the world now? Oh, okay. So this is that. So Cicero is one of my favorite characters from antiquity. He's incredibly human. We have all his letters, so we probably know more about his personal life than anyone else. And he had his human foibles. He was a real kind of a self-promoter. I'm sure he would be all over Twitter if he were around today. My favorite fact about him is that he wrote two epics about his own consulship because he couldn't manage to get a professional poet to write them for him. But this was actually a very impressive and original political philosopher. He was the sort of founder of the theoretical Republican tradition. You could say he was the James Madison of antiquity. He combined sort of philosophical sophistication, awareness of stoic natural law ideas with practical political experience. And it's very interesting that in general, the ancient philosophical tradition was not very friendly toward republicanism or democracy. Famously, Plato wasn't. Aristotle kind of was. But he argued for a mixed government with elements of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, like Cicero, but only in terms of stability as its benefit. Whereas it was Cicero who argued that it was good because it led to freedom. The state was not wholly dominated by either one man, an oligarchical faction, or the public as a whole without respect for minority rights. It would lead to slavery of the individual citizen. And this was Cicero, he made this kind of groundbreaking argument, defending it, in t defending republicanism in terms of as being the best form of government for preserving individuals from the arbitrary domination of others. Like I said, he was pretty much alone in the classical philosophical tradition in doing this. The pro-Republican tradition, which influenced the later uh, Anglo-American Republican ideology, mostly otherwise came from historians like Sallust, Livy, and Tacitus, as well as from the Roman legal tradition. But Cicero really gave it its only philosophical articulation, and from this he is, is extremely original and admirable. 
A couple of times you mentioned a few Greek personalities. So I'll end with this question for our listeners who want a big picture historical lesson uh, that they can draw from Greek city states in terms of what it means to support self-government in the 21st century. What would be some of the things you want us to know? Well, I would say that the most important political lesson, which I personally think I have learned from my study of Greco-Roman society and political theory, is a greater appreciation of the values, very Ciceronian, of republicanism. Previously, I used to be much more kind of a hardcore libertarian who was very kind of disdainful of the classical Republican tradition because of its seeming lack of emphasis on sort of negative liberty, high valuation of active political participation is essential. But more and more, I've come to appreciate how without the Republican tradition, liberalism in isolation degenerates into feudalism. Without the concept of the res publica, the idea of the, the public sphere as the common property of all citizens and the importance of the concept of citizenship, the concept of law as a matter of public deliberation and not merely private contract, and the ideal of self-government, active participation of all citizens in government rather than merely being left alone, you're left with a kind of idea of the state, as Cicero would say, is the private property of one person, which is fund- which fundamentally leads to, as he pointed out, in practice to lack of individual freedom. Here, libertarianism becomes self-undermining if it's not wedded to classical Republican ideals of self-government. Well, with many of our guests, we provide uh, him or her an opportunity to read a passage um, that you think is important. So I will let you pick something for us and, and read it to our audience. Okay, so the passage I'd like to do is from the Iliad. And it is, um, so the background for the scene is that Hector, the great warrior defending the Trojan side, is talking to his wife Andromache on the city wall. And she is begging him not to go out and face Achilles because she knows that he's going to be killed, or, and, and he does too. Then tall Hector of the shining helm answered her, All these things are in my mind also, lady, yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing garments if like a coward I were to shrink aside from the fighting, and the spirit will not let me, since I have learned to be valiant, and to fight always among the foremost ranks of the Trojans. For I know this thing well in my heart, and my mind knows it. There will come a day when sacred Ilion shall perish, and Priam and the people of the strong ash spear. But it is not so much the pain to come of the Trojans that troubles me, not even of Priam the king, nor Hecuba, nor the thought of my brothers, who in their numbers and valor shall drop in the dust under the hands of men who hate them, as troubles me the thought of you when some bronze-armored Achaean weeds you off, taking away a day of liberty. In tears, and in Argos you must work at the room of another, and carry water from the spring Messias or Hyperia. And some day, seeing you shedding tears, a man will say of you, 
This is the wife of Hector, who was ever the bravest fighter of the Trojans, breakers of horses in the days when they fought about Ilium. So speaking, glorious Hector held out his arms to his baby, who shrank back to his fair good old nurse's bosom, screaming and frightened at the aspect of his own father, terrified as he saw the bronze and the crest with its horsehair, nodding dreadfully, as he thought, from the peak of the helmet. Then his beloved father laughed out, and his honored mother, and at once glorious Hector lifted from his head the helmet, and laid it in all its shining upon the ground. Then taking up his dear son, he tossed him about in his arms, and kissed him, and lifted his voice in prayer to Zeus and the other immortals. Zeus and you other immortals, Grant that this boy, who is my son, may be as I am, preeminent among the Trojans, great in strength as am I, and rule strongly over Ilion, and some day let them say of him, he is better by far than his father. Well, Dr. Morgan Hunter, thank you so much for spending this time with us today on The Learning Curve. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care, and we hope to speak with you soon. Gerard, as always, we close it out with the tweet of the week. I love this tweet of the week. As we were saying at the at the outset, it's been um, it was a pretty great weekend. Well, this might be the greatest thing. So we have a new um, Scripps National Spelling Bee winner. As you might have read, she happens to be the first African American um, Spelling Bee winner, and her name is Zaila Avantgarde. I mean, first of all. What an amazing name. But when you really read into this story, what an absolutely amazing kid. So on top of being the National Spelling Bee winner, I did a little bit of of, of sleuthing to find out more about this wonderful young person. She is um, a basketball prodigy. She actually holds three Guinness World Records for dribbling. And, um, and, and so and she's like, oh yeah. And she's apparently one of the top like eighth grade, um, basketball prospects in the country. So this is like, I, 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 she is just dynamite. And then I was watching the video of her winning. And on top of that, Gerard, she's got quite a sense of humor. So, you know, she won on the word, I'm probably even going to mispronounce it because I've never heard it, but Maria or Marie, I think it's Maria. Do you even know what that means, Gerard? Nope. Okay, well, just just so we're all clear, it's spelled M-U-R-R-Y-A, and it is a genus of flowering plants in the citrus family. Of course, I had to look that up, too. But when, when they gave her the word, she said she wanted to clarify, and she said something along the lines of, Murray as in what could be the name of, I don't know, a comedian. <laughs> so she was like, Bill Murray actually made the spelling bee. So, um, I mean, just like overall, I encourage everybody to go Google this young lady, watch, uh, watch the footage of her winning it, like just warm your heart. And this is for sure, not the last we are going to hear of her. So really, really great stuff. And Gerard, next week, we are going to be back here with Miriam Memersadagi. Um, she is the co-founder and co-director. I, I can't imagine how many things I'm mispronouncing right now, Gerard, but we're going to go with it. She's the co-founder and co-director of Tavana, a civic education capacity building initiative for free and open Iran. 
And um, she was also, I love this. I can't wait to talk to her about this. She was among the 43 individuals whose portrait President George W. Bush painted for his new book, Out of Many One, Portraits of America's Immigrants. So um, as always, it's going to be an interesting conversation on the learning curve. Listeners, we hope you tune in next week. And Gerard, until then, be well, stay safe. Looking forward to talking to you uh, seven days from now. And in the interim, I'm going to talk to my two younger daughters about dribbling basketballs faster. <laughs> and I'm going to give them the dictionary. So yeah, no I'll, pressure, kids. No pressure. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. I've, I've just got a, a new hobby. There you go. Yeah, get on it. Hurry up. <laughs> All right. Great being with you as always. All right. Take care, Jared.